In September, an administrative law judge issued a decision for the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission evaluating the interplay between the unpreventable employee misconduct defense and the imputation of knowledge to an employer on the basis of conduct by a supervisor. I'm Manish Rath, and you're participating in the December 2020 episode of the OSHA 3030. Welcome to the OSHA 3030. This is a program that we put on every 30 days to cover a developmental issue in the field of OSHA law in about 30 minutes. Uh, joined today by my colleague here at the law firm Keller and Heckman, Larry Halpern. Larry has been a partner here at Keller and Heckman for several decades, has been practicing in the field of occupational safety and health law nationwide, is considered one of the preeminent names in OSHA law, representing management anywhere in the country in federal OSHA states, in state plan states, and has represented employers in citation contests in virtually every federal OSHA region and state plan states around the country, uh, and is known by just about everyone in the community who, who practices in the field of OSHA law. So I'm particularly grateful, Larry, that you've joined us today. Larry, welcome to the OSHA 3030. Thank you, Manish. Appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Well, Larry, we've got an interesting decision today. Uh, we've been picking interesting topics in the, in the field of OSHA law, developing issues in OSHA law for uh, over seven years. And we've, we're in our 86th or 87th episode, somewhere around there. And all of those episodes are libraried on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Uh, some of those topics are still instructive. I encourage new participants to the OSHA 3030 to take a look at our website, look through the episodes and see if there are subjects there that are still of interest to you. I think that they'll still be instructive and all of them are still very relevant in the field of OSHA law. We do this program uh, complimentary to clients and friends of the firm Keller and Heckman. And, but all we ask in exchange is that when you get an invitation to register for the next OSHA 3030, please forward it on to three others within your organization or at other organizations that are responsible for compliance with occupational safety and health laws, either as safety professionals or in your company's office of general counsel. Uh, with that said, why don't we get into today's facts? Today's facts relates to the case, uh, Secretary of Labor versus New River uh, Electrical Corporation. Uh, we're gonna talk about the, the facts in that case and we're gonna get into the background, just making sure everyone is level set on the concept of the unpreventable employee misconduct defense. Then we'll talk about uh, another concept which is tangentially related, which is the imputation to the employer of alleged misconduct by a supervisor. We're going to analyze the administrative law judge's decision in this matter and try and understand some of the key steps that an administrative law judge will go through in uh, evaluating an unpreventable employee misconduct defense. Finally, as we always do, we will wrap up with some takeaway items for you to bring back to your organizations on a final slide about what employers should do. Okay, let's talk about the background of this case. Larry, our case begins with an electrical project uh, at a residential subdivision uh, outside of Columbus, Ohio. If you drive 
maybe eight or nine miles southwest from Columbus, Ohio, you come to a subdivision by the name Madison Mills. And it has a charm to it that's in large part owing to the fact that all of the electrical power lines are buried underground all through the neighborhood. So you don't have that overhead uh, visual of overhead power lines. They stop at the northern and southern ends of the neighborhood. The overhead power lines get buried into underground power lines. The neighborhood is quite established by now. And so after many years, the, the electrical power grid for Madison Mills was in need of uh, upgrading and replacing of some of the cables and as well some of the components. The power company hired a contractor, uh, New River Electrical Corporation based in, uh, in Virginia near Roanoke. And thus the name New River Electrical Corporation, by the way, the name of a river in Virginia that flows north towards the Ohio River. But this, this takes place in Columbus, Ohio. These are relevant facts, which we'll describe in a moment. The contractor, New River Electrical Corporation, sent out three crews, two undergrounding crews and one aerial crew called the Riser Crew. The two undergrounding crews were assigned the task of replacing the cabling underground and the aerial crew or the riser crew was responsible for the work done at the north riser and the south riser at the north and south ends of the neighborhood uh, to, to make sure that the connections for the underground segments uh, are, are integrated with the work being done on those two risers. This was in November of 2017. And so winter was coming on fast and the electrical company therefore under testimony it was revealed that the electrical company was putting pressure on New River Valley, New River Electrical Corporation to hurry up and finish their work because when the work needed to be done, there were six hour shifts where the power had to be shut down for the neighborhood so that the crews could safely perform their work. As winter was coming, the electrical company wanted this work to be wrapped up so that power wasn't out in the heart of winter for these residents of Madison Mills neighborhood. So the crews engaged in their work and part of the work requires de-energization and then testing of uh, the energization, uh, grounding of cables and tagging, uh, tagging the cables that are grounded and then work can commence on replacement. Uh, the risers themselves had to be knocked down, a process they referred to as wrecking out the risers, rebuilding them. And along with that, all of the equipment that's hanging on the riser, including not just the cabling, but the transformers and the, the component that merges all of the uh, multiple cables into a single cable before it goes underground, referred to as a pothead. So, so the workers were working on the transformer at the risers. This is the riser crew, while the undergrounding crew was performing its work. As time in that six hour window was coming to an end, the electrical company turned the energy back on and the crew working on the undergrounding ceased work. Uh, a, an employee working on the transformer at the North Riser uh, was performing work and was in contact with an energized line and sustained uh, second and third degree burns all over his body and, uh, and also other injuries relating to uh, suffering an electrical shock from over 7,000 volts of electricity. Larry, as you can imagine, 
the employer conducted an immediate investigation. There are some facts that, that happened before that. The supervisor for one of the undergrounding crews immediately went to the, to the two risers to inspect and see what happened. Uh, and later testimony reveals that he, he changed the uh, grounding so that it would have appeared as if it was probably grounded and tagged. Later on, he admitted that at this time that re-energization occurred, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't proper grounding and tagging. Uh, that that cover-up, I think, is, is critical. But, but then OSHA comes on board and conducts an inspection. And as you know, having done this many times, uh, representing employers in citation contests, the, there were a lot of interviews, including interviews of the three foremen, the foreman of the two undergrounding crews and the riser crew as well. Uh, Larry, anything else that we, we should talk about when we talk about the basic facts of this case before we start talking about the principles of law involved? I, I think you mentioned there was a six-hour window. And I don't know enough about uh, identifying problems with transformers, whether they could have done that in advance. But what happened is they were pulling lines through about 30-some transformers and found four that had to be replaced, which they weren't anticipating. So there was a delay getting replacement transformers and then getting them in place. And as a result of that, they were going to be behind, they were overdue, and there was substantial pressure coming from the superintendent, and I'm sure from the power company to, to get the job done. And as a result of that, uh, they cut some corners and there was uh, could have been a lot worse. I know because nobody died, but uh, that's you know this is another example of what happens when pressure to get something done causes people not to do what they're supposed to do. And fortunately, the person did survive. So, Larry, let's talk about uh, the basics. Just so we're clear, I guess on the interview. So, power company AD, AEP conducts it. Investigation. The superintendent for the employer conducted an investigation. OSHA conducted an investigation. Probably an insurance carrier got involved, and, and I'm not sure who else. So they were all going on at once. And initially, the foreman decided he was going to cover up what happened, and uh, apparently made false statements to his employer and a couple others, and then hid the facts from OSHA, and then later advised OSHA of what had happened. Uh, which was good for the employer. And then the employer fired both that supervisor and the other supervisor who had conformed a story to the same misstatement of facts. Who happened to be related, perhaps a brother-in-law. It would have been a lot worse, I have imagined, if the employer had gone along with that. But I think OSHA was convinced that the employer had no knowledge of what the supervisors had done in that sense, and so didn't take it out on the employer at all, but basically the result was the two foremen were, were terminated. Well, it would have been worse, uh, Hal, I believe you're referring to the criminal exposure potential for lying to a compliance officer in the context of an OSHA investigation? That and, and then, you know, if, if you're an OSHA inspector and somebody lies to you, then you go looking for everything you can find as opposed to focusing on the incident, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a great point, Larry. Thank you for bringing that up. 
So Larry, let's talk about the, the first concept of law that I think this case is important for, which is the concept of constructive knowledge of a violative condition. As a, as a matter of law, an occupational safety and health uh, compliance officer can establish that the employer knew that there was a violative condition or that they should have known with the exercise of reasonable amount of diligence about a violative condition and that they failed to exercise that reasonable diligence to discover or uncover an alleged violative condition. Uh, in this particular case, the agency alleged that the concept that the uh, company had a safety program in place and that they knew the proper way of uh, conducting this task, but didn't, but failed to do so, uh, constituted an element to show constructive knowledge. Uh, they had a training program, they had a policy, they had job uh, safety uh, analysis and a job hazard analysis that they performed at the beginning of the, uh, of the task at Madison Mills. Uh, they all testified that they understood that this was a highly dangerous activity. And these are elements that OSHA used in trial to show that, that the employer had constructive knowledge of the violative condition when in fact, the line was re-energized without proper tagging uh, without uh, the grounding and the communication to all of the parties uh, involved at both at, at the multiple parts of, of the project. Right. Well, the, the LJ found that there was actually no grounding plan. And if you're going to have a project like this, which OSHA no doubt considers highly dangerous and which the LJ agreed, that means that you have an enhanced obligation as far as training and plans and establishing permits to work and things like that to make sure the job gets done properly. In this particular case, there was one foreman who had only been a supervisor foreman on the job for one day who had no additional training and grounding and had a vague idea of what it was about. The JSA, JHA didn't mention grounding or tagging. so. They got a document that has a nice name to it, but missed on a critical component of what should have been in it. Uh, so when you look at the big picture, they had some rules. They weren't effectively communicated to at least one foreman. There were three foremen on the job and nobody seemed to know who was in charge overall either. So when you get that situation where there's doubt as to who's in charge, there's no grounding plan and you've got a dangerous activity with a foreman who's not properly trained, then uh, the judge says, that wasn't all of it, but these are major factors. The judge simply says, you have an inadequate safety program. If you had one, you would have detected this problem, but you didn't have one or you would have prevented it. You didn't have one. So we're going to say you have constructive knowledge of the violation. So I think the next concept that I want to make sure everyone's up to date on is that the misconduct of the supervisor specifically, I think there's a number of alleged instances of misconduct, but one of them would be the failure to uh, hand out tags to the other two supervisors to make sure their crew used them. Another is, is his practice with respect to grounding and then re-energization without communicating to the rest of the team. We're spread out over what looks like at least a half mile. 
Uh, and then another one would be the idea that uh, when you when you uh, engage in, as you mentioned, the job hazard analysis, it was not comprehensive with respect to any of these elements. Uh, so there's there's a number of instances of misconduct that are being uh, attributed to one of those undergrounding supervisors. Uh, the question is whether or not a supervisor's misconduct can be imputed to an employer. Uh, we've covered this before in the OSHA 3030 in a prior episode where the review commission has taken the position that the question of whether a, a, a person generally, his misconduct or his violative act can be attributed to the employer hinges on whether or not he has supervisorial duty. That is to say the review commission has taken the position that where a non-supervisorial employee is concerned, an employer has the opportunity to examine whether or not it can invoke the unpreventable employee misconduct defense, but that if the employee is supervisorial in status, that that is inherently an instance where the supervisor is wearing the hat of the employer itself and his knowledge is imputed to the employer, his acts are imputed to the employer, and therefore, if it was a misconduct by a supervisor, then, then that is misconduct by the employer or a violative uh, condition by the employer. There's a split in the circuits, however. The Fourth Circuit, which is the U.S. Court of Appeals that has a territory that includes Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, uh, South Carolina, this is the Fourth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. This is my home circuit uh, being here in Virginia. Uh, they've taken the position that a supervisor's misconduct has to be foreseeable in order for his misconduct to be attributable to the employer or her conduct to be attributable to the employer. In the Sixth Circuit, which is uh, Ohio, Kentucky, I believe uh, Indiana might be a part of the Sixth Circuit, that U.S. Court of Appeals circuit rulings have stated that misconduct can be imputed to the employer on merely the virtue of the supervisor's supervisorial status. That's consistent with the Review Commission. And that explains why I wanted to make clear that this was a project being done in Columbus, Ohio, by a corporation headquartered in Roanoke, Virginia, because the the, the respondent, New River Electrical Corporation, had argued that the Review Commission should apply the law of the circuit in which the company is headquartered, because that's where they would likely file their appeal. The Review Commission said, well, actually, either side could appeal the case. And so the Review Commission could appeal it in the Sixth Circuit as well, but they could actually additionally also file their appeal in the District of Columbia, which is where the Review Commission resides. Some eight blocks from our office at Keller and Heckman's Washington DC office. And so, so that's, that's not a bad point. Uh, so with that said, the Review Commission, looking at its own prior decisions, concluded that it was at liberty to follow its own precedent rather than the guidance established by those other circuits, thereby avoiding having to deal with the circuit split itself, which is probably a, a sticky question of law as to whether a Review Commission can resolve a circuit split. And let's add one more thing to that, Manish, that the, the judge in his decision said, even if we applied the law of a, the Fourth Circuit, in this particular case, the, the judge basically held this conduct would be considered foreseeable based on the fact pattern. That's a fair point, a great point. Thank you, Larry. So, so 
once you've established that there is employer knowledge of uh, allegedly violative condition, the other elements in this particular fact pattern aren't really a dispute. Was there employee exposure? Of course, there was an employee, an apprentice working on the on the North Riser who was holding a cable at the time that it was energized and suffered uh, severe burns and electrical shock. Uh, was there an alleged violative condition? Well, if you just took a look at the tagging requirement, and in addition to all of the other elements of the electrical standard, including grounding, there were there was a sufficient amount of evidence that OSHA had presented to permit the administrative law judge to conclude that there was a violative condition and that there was exposure. And now we've dispensed with the question of employer knowledge. And that brings us around to the final uh, question, which is what are the affirmative defenses available to the employer? And the employer asserted that, that the supervisor's uh, conduct was an example of unpreventable employee misconduct both in the failure to communicate to the other supervisors, foreman, his expectation of the use of grounding practices and tagging of lines, as well as his fa ultimate failure to re-communicate uh, the, the re-energization. And, and I, I think to be clear, uh, he did go back and uh, change the circumstances prior to the investigation with the specific intent to, to lead the employer and the compliance safety and health officer to the wrong conclusion. Uh, so when an employer tries to assert uh, an affirmative defense of unpreventable employee misconduct, they have to show that they had already established work rules designed to prevent a violation of an OSHA standard and that they had adequately communicated those rules to all employees affected through training and other communication media and that they had taken ongoing steps to monitor for potential violations and that they, when monitoring, had noticed any violations, that they were they had a record of enforcing the rule. Uh, there are cases out there, and we may have covered some of them in the OSHA 3030 over the years, where the employer hadn't had any other such violations. Uh, that's somewhat the case here, and we'll, we'll, we should probably get into that next. Uh, when the administrative law judge examined the facts in this case, they found that there were work rules in place to conduct this task in a safe manner. Uh, and that this, this uh, was something that had been adequately communicated to employees. There was a training program. Larry, as you pointed out, one of the supervisors had only been a supervisor for a very brief time. And I'm not really sure that on that particular job site, there was evidence that the lead foreman had communicated his expectations to the other two foremen. Indeed, there was testimonial evidence to the contrary. Sure, yeah. Uh, I think that the, the riser supervisor was not had testified that he hadn't been informed of uh, the need to bring tags, didn't bring tags, wasn't given tags by the lead supervisor, uh, Foreman Howard. Uh, and so I think that there's some some evidence that although the company communicated work rules, that that the lead foreman hadn't communicated them with specific request to this job, uh, which I think is problematic. Let, let's go back a step. Besides the a job like this should be done by an experienced crew. If they had been properly trained, somebody would have taken it upon themselves to make sure they had the right equipment and had done it properly. So we have, if they'd been properly trained, 
apprentice or lower people uh, who just went along with what was done and supervisors didn't tell them what they should have told them. The people probably knew better, but didn't do it because everybody was rushed at this particular point and worrying about squeezing four transformers in in six hours. Um, so there's probably more facts that would have been relevant, but in this case, the focus was really on what the foreman did not do as opposed to what the whole crew really didn't do. They should never have been in this position in the first place. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think that in this particular case, as, as you said, and every, in addition to everything you've said, when I looked through the opinion, it, it seemed like the, the, some of the most compelling evidence uh, against New River Electrical was that the, the communication between the foreman seemed to represent the biggest gap in communication of, of the company rules. Uh, and that, that even though there was testimony, I'd say conflicting testimony amongst the three supervisors as to how much uh, they were subjected to the rigors of an internal audit, which I, I think went to the, that third element of monitoring for compliance, uh, that, that indeed some testimony had by, by non-supervisory employees suggested that some audits were just for a few minutes and they weren't comprehensive. Um, there was a discussion by the judge that ballpark 215 pages of disciplinary materials were provided and almost all of it had to do with absenteeism, alcohol use, drug use, uh, those kinds of things, not safety issues. Uh, the small number of things that involve safety issues, according to the judges, I recall just about every one of them was an after the fact discovery of some event which resulted in disciplinary action. And in a world where there are few supervisors and lots of line people, that's going to be a problem in many cases and employers need to think about that. If, if you're not supervising people and identifying problems outside of an accident situation, then you're always gonna find a judge like this who's saying you're not paying enough attention because if you have this level of deviation from what should be done, judges are assuming that it's happening at other times besides the time of an accident and that you just didn't bother to identify it. And during the testimony, there was discussion about the fact that one foreman said that they enforced the rules and then acknowledged that he'd never taken any disciplinary action against an electrical issue, an employee with respect to an electrical issues in 15 years. Uh, so basically, uh, when the pressure was on to do something quickly, the safety rules got set aside to some extent and this was the unfortunate result. And there really was you know, no way to substantiate this defense. There was a plan, like you said, but it wasn't effectively communicated. And if it wasn't even effectively communicated, then there was really no way that anybody was gonna be able to follow up on it and see that it was properly enforced and take disciplinary action in this case, yeah, they, they fired two people after the fact, but they fired them for lying probably more than for breaking the safety rules. It seems that way to me, that's right, when I so. looked at the, the opinion. Well, you make a good point. I think that the other problem, as you described it, was that New River Electrical seems to be conflating the disciplinary records with the monitoring duty. And they showed a, a stack of uh, disciplinary events 
but because it, it according to testimony by by foreman howard he had never issued a actually this was the superintendent who testified he'd never issued a disciplinary um, warning or, or other action on the basis of an electrical violation uh, it, it suggests not just a lack of actual record of disciplining for those kinds of violations but it also suggests the failure to monitor uh, because as the judge noted that what disciplinary actions he did see were taken after accidents that might be discipline, but it's not monitoring. You don't have to monitor to see that an accident had occurred and then issue a disciplinary uh, action. So, so that was, a, I think, a relatively fair observation on the part of the judge that, that's, that may show discipline, but it doesn't show monitoring. Um, and you really have to be rather rigorous in, in the monitoring and discipline in order to successfully prosecute a, an affirmative defensive employer I'm sorry, unpreventable employee misconduct. Uh, these, these defenses lose more often than they win. Uh, and almost all of the time they lose on one of these two elements or both the monitoring and discipline elements of the unpreventable employee misconduct yeah. defense. My experience in the enforcement area is if this defense is going to work, more often than not, you're gonna be able to make the case with the compliance officer in the first place. And if you can't make that case more often than not, when you try to litigate it after the fact, it's going to be an uphill battle. Yeah, it is an uphill battle defense. It's not to say that it's not worth considering and maybe even raising, but, uh, but, the, but the burden in establishing this defense is a tough one. So that- even worse in California, but it just in general, it, it is tough. That's right. You don't always have all the facts until discovery is a little more complete, but- like I said, my, my experience is the best way to, to prevail on that is to convince the uh, inspector before the citations issued. With that said, Larry, let's talk about some of the lessons, some of the takeaway items that our participants can, can draw from the New River Electrical case. I think the first one is the importance of establishing clear safety rules uh, and, and making sure that they're clearly communicated to the affected employees. Well, I agree, and I added the permits to work. I think I, my experience is for a job like this, there would be a permit, and a permit would have all these conditions met, and somebody would sign off on it before this kind of work would go forward. This isn't the kind of thing where you do it on the fly, and it right. appears that's what happened here. Right. Every single worker on that project should have been uh, very well-trained electricians, given the highly dangerous nature of the work. But the elevation to foreman position, I think, should be reserved until an employee not only has uh, an exceptionally high degree of formal training, but also a significant number of years of experience without any incidents on his crew uh, and, and has demonstrated under close supervision that the foreman has the knowledge and the rigor of habits to perform the work every day uh, using all of the safety precautions called for in those work rules. Um, that's easier said than done, especially given the electrical field, there is a well-known shortage. Uh, I, I am OSHA counsel in the field of uh, electrical contractors and I, and I know that the training is, uh, I think impressive in, in its uh, rigor. And I think it's very tough to find folk that have either undergone that training or are willing to take on that training. Uh, so I, think I, I appreciate the problem. 
Yeah, there's there's one more thing I would try. Um, I would try some sort of communication between the power company and the community and say, this is what we're going to be doing. This is dangerous work. Our employees are potentially exposed to this level of voltage. We need to take these precautions and we apologize for the fact that it may inconvenience you for a while. We'll keep you up to date on where we are. And when things like transformers need to be replaced come up and then you notify the community and you just have to expect that there's gonna be some delays. Um, and that's, if the people in the community recognize what the hazards are, I think they're going to be more tolerant of the fact that the power is off for a while. If you don't explain it to them, just say, we've got to do some electrical work. They don't really understand it. And then you get this pressure. Yes. And there may be, in fact, uh, for all we know, those kind of communications that what did go out. But I, I think your point is well taken that the pressure to complete it in six hours is arbitrary and it, uh, it potentially causes contractors to shortcut on safety. And then that obviously should shouldn't happen. Uh, I, I think that to me, one of the most important parts of this case is the, the necessity to frequently monitor foremen as well as uh, staff, non-supervisorial staff for internal compliance with safe practices. And that requires a third person not on the crew, not on the project to drive around from project to project and make spot checks to make sure that things are being done properly. It would not have been difficult in this case to see that lines weren't tagged uh, and to see that that they weren't following their own internal uh, safe practices. Um, I think one that, foreman said he was actually trained by another foreman to to do these kinds of things when there was a rush to get a job done. That was in the testimony. Well, I, Larry, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. I think that if the foreman who's doing the training is training according to the best practices, that's, that's probably the best way to learn these kinds of job-specific tasks that are just not going to be taught in uh, electrical coursework. Yeah, I'm just saying that this, this particular foreman's testimony was he was, in fact, told to cut corners and, and go to a lower level of safety practice uh, when there yeah. was a rush job. Your point is well taken that, that uh, good training as to best practices begets uh, good practices, but uh, foreman with bad practices charged with training begets a progeny of bad uh, habits for successive supervisors. Mm -hmm. And right. so that's why I say it requires somebody, a third person outside the crew to come around and monitor. I think that's the check and balance. Uh, okay, I think finally, it's important to say that every time I, I've seen cases like this, when I've represented employers and they've wanted to discuss the unpreventable employee misconduct defense, that, that the poverty of disciplinary history is always going to be limiting when trying to raise this defense. Uh, and you should also recognize that to the Review Commission, as well as to some of the circuits in the US Court of Appeals, when we're talking about a supervisor, in many jurisdictions, all bets are off if you're talking about knowledge of a violative condition, that the knowledge or conduct of a supervisor in some jurisdictions, including the Review Commission, is imputed to the employer per se. And that's, means that the only remaining resort for an employer is to make sure that they're safely, properly trained on how to do it safely and that you're monitoring the supervisors from time to time with spot check-ins frequently. In a case where I didn't have a disciplinary history, but there was only a, a one-off outlier, 
Then we used the testimony of other employees who came forward and said they understood the rules, they followed them, and they recognized that if they didn't follow them, they were going to be terminated. It was you know, a lockout, tagout type issue, and you get statements like that from employees on the other side. So there's a clear understanding that they can explain to a compliance officer or, or an ALJ that they understand that's what's going to happen and they don't do that kind of thing. And the one person who did it was a true outlier. Well, Larry, that's one of the reasons I've enjoyed working with you on these citation defenses and, and why you're so successful. When I see other cases, I see that the witnesses, including in this case, when I read this very lengthy opinion, uh, it listed who the witnesses were and witnesses of the type you're describing were not at trial. Nobody called them. The witnesses who were particular to this particular event were, were put on trial. And that is uh, very typical for, for uh, unpreventable employee misconduct defense, but your approach would have been far more complete and would have yielded much richer evidence and give, given much better context to the administrative law judge when evaluating how to impute any liability to, to the employer itself. So that's a great point you made. And it, it's really what makes you more exceptional rather than the rule uh, when, when structuring the strategy for uh, a proper defense. Uh, with that said, Larry, uh, thank you for bringing that point up. You get to raise the last points today uh, for today's OSHA 3030. Between now and next month, you can catch more OSHA updates from us on Twitter, at Rathmonish, on our LinkedIn pages. Larry Halpern has a LinkedIn page. So do all the rest of us on our uh, Keller and Heckman safety and health team, as well as Keller and Heckman has its own LinkedIn uh, workplace safety and health page. Uh, this program is rebroadcast as a podcast. So if you subscribe to the OSHA 3030 on your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can catch it, it'll just automatically download. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, even on iHeartRadio and several others. It's important to make sure that you like or rate the podcast so that it's more easily searchable by others and that they can enjoy the benefit of the program and the knowledge that, that's being shared at the OSHA 3030. Uh, Starting next month, we're going to do something new. We record this program and we post it on our website and we rebroadcast it as a podcast. Uh, starting next month, we're going to turn off the recording and for an additional 10 minutes or so, we'll be happy to answer any questions that are pre-submitted by email. So send your emails to me uh, at rath at khlaw.com and I'll pick one or two, uh, whatever we have time for, and we'll be able to discuss those just in a live unrecorded forum. It'll give you the benefit of getting some of your questions answered uh, in the context of the OSHA 3030 community. So, so send those, think about some good questions, send them out to rath at khlaw.com. Uh, we'll see you again next month at 1 p.m. January 27th, Eastern time, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Uh, you can get that invitation at khlaw.com or to register or you'll get an email. And when you do, don't forget to, uh, to, to send that on to three other people. Our sister programs, if your company is responsible for complying with TOSCA, the TOSCA 3030, or with REACH, the REACH 3030, will be scheduled uh, on January 13th at 1 p.m. And stay tuned if you comply, if your company has to comply with FIFRA uh, for the next FIFRA 3030. Until next month, thank you all for participating in this month's OSHA 3030. Larry Halpern, thank you for joining me again uh, for another OSHA 3030. We look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, Stay safe.